Happy Father's Day again to everybody. We are going to certainly talk about the theme of fatherhood today as it applies in this chapter. But first, I want to talk about another concept we get from this chapter, sorrow. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> sorrow is a gift from God. And that may sound strange to our ears because we, aff we affiliate gifts from God with things that bring us joy and peace. And sorrow seems like the opposite of joy and peace. But think about it. If we didn't have sorrow, we would simply be content with the state of our fallen existence. <clears throat> we would have no desire for God or his righteous standards. And if we did not have godly sorrow, we would never repent of sin. We also would not, ha we also would not have love because sorrow is in fact intricate, intricately woven into love. I mean, if someone you claim to love dies and you feel no sorrow in their death, did you really love that person? I don't think so. But apart from that, the reality is that in our fallen condition, um, our fallen condition regularly causes us sorrow in a wide variety of degrees. Sorrow is an indicator that we are sensitive to a void that's in our life. And on, on a universal scale, the sorrow of mankind indicates the sensitivity that man has to his separation from God. A man may suppress that knowledge and that divine sensitivity, but he, can, he cannot escape the emotional void that he feels every day that results from his separation from his creator. For the knowledge of God is wired into us, as Romans 1 tells us. Otherwise, we would never feel sorrow because we would never expect or hope for anything to be better than it is. But we have this expectation because God has intricately woven that ideal in us. We know instinctively that we should be joyful and at peace as that is the ideal. It is the deepest desire of our hearts. And perfect joy and, and peace was the state man was in when he was created by God. And we were there. We were all in Adam. So when the fall happened, we all experienced that fall when sorrow was born. And sorrow helps us to recognize that this, this is not how things should be. It helps, it helps us to recognize our need for Christ. Now, some may be responding to that saying, okay, we get it. We need Christ. Now, please, God, enough with the sorrow. <laughs> Um, but in those times wherein we are so focused on our sorrow that we are experiencing, we should ask, we should add, we must remember the amount of sorrow that God must feel on a daily basis as he sees all that is going on in our minds, in the world. He feels the sorrow that every person feels, but on an, on an eternally greater level. He hears every moment of every day as creation groans to be redeemed from this fallen state, as Romans 8.22 says, as Mark taught on a few weeks ago. And our Heavenly Father is perfectly empathetic. And the empathy that he has was revealed to us in Christ. I mean, there was one example. You remember when, when Lazarus died and Jesus went to... Went to uh, the place where he was after waiting for four days after he died and, and spoke to his sister. 
In John eleven thirty three, 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, Jesus purposely went there to resurrect Lazarus. He knew there was going to be a happy ending. That's why he went there. But he still felt the sorrow of those who loved Lazarus. And it caused him to be deeply moved and greatly troubled by what they were feeling. Sorrow is a genuine expression of love. But like any gift from God, it can be corrupted in our fallen state. Wherein sorrow can become overly self, we can become overly self-focused in our sorrow. And that overly self-focused state can lead to depression and, and disorder in our hearts and minds. Which is why we must redirect our focus from off of ourselves and to God when we feel that sorrow becoming overwhelming in ourselves. Anyway, this chapter we just read is full of sorrow. As in this chapter, three people that were very close to Jacob passed away, causing Jacob and his family to feel great sorrow. So let's break this down. Let's go back through and walk through this passage. There's a lot we can glean. Starting at verse 1, it says, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So remember, this was right after Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, had slaughtered the men of Shechem because that one guy, Shechem, raped Jacob's daughter, their, their sister. And along with that, Jacob's other sons went and, went and pillaged the city of Shechem in response to what happened to Dinah, their sister. So God repeated his command to Jacob to go to Bethel. Remember, he had told him to go to Bethel before, and Jacob didn't. He went to Shechem. And, he, and God told him to go there and build an altar and live there. Bethel was the place where God first appeared to and spoke to Jacob through the vision that he had of the angels ascending and descending on that ladder. You remember that, Jacob's ladder? That ladder, of course, was a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ as Jesus himself said it was in a conversation that he would have with Nathaniel in the New Testament when he said, "The heaven, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus was pointing to that specific thing as a prophetic picture. Anyway, God's initial call for Jacob to return to this place called Bethel that was used to be called Luz was a call that Jacob acknowledged initially, but ultimately did not obey, which is why Jacob and his family settled in that place called Shechem, putting his already idol-worshipping family under the direct influence of an idol-worshipping people. But God allowed that to happen and transpire. He allowed all this terrible stuff to happen in Shechem as a means of shaking Jacob out of a state of spiritual complacency and step up as the father that he was called to be by God. As in verse 2 in Genesis 35, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and cleanse yourselves and change your garments. Jacob knew the, the spiritual state of his family. He knew that they had become enticed by all the idolatry of the people around him, around them. 
He knew his own wife, Rachel, was still worshiping idols when she stole those idols from her, her, from her father and, and left. But he did nothing about it up until this point. He had failed to step up as the father. He had failed to step up as the husband and as the spiritual leader in the home. But finally, he acted as a godly father should, asserting his God-given patriarchal authority. Now, today's modern world will be triggered by that statement. They will cringe when they hear that P word, patriarchal. And on this Father's Day, the world despises what God has called fathers to be. The world will shout, how dare you invoke the patriarchal roles of such an uncivilized, barbaric, oppressive, and non-woke age. The world views fathers as today as bumbling idiots, abusive, and privileged. And the, the Disney rainbow fairy world wants fathers to be submissive, effeminate, and tolerant of all things. The world certainly does not want fathers to lead by biblical standards. They will say, well, Jacob's kids were all adults at that point, and they could decide to worship whomever they want or whatever they want. In fact, today's world would even say that children can worship whatever they want, no matter how old they are, even if it means cutting off body parts to change your gender. And most American parents say they don't want to impose their religion on their children. They want their kids to make a decision for themselves. Well, how did that work out for Jacob? Not so good. They all became idol worshipers because of his silence. Children left to their own devices will always choose to sin because they are depraved. Therefore, if they are not sanctified by their parents' godly influence and discipline, with, with the father as the head, they will end up living depraved lives in some sense, varying degrees, or even dead at a young age. But the world will respond. It's all about free will, man. And it's your patriarchal mentality that has caused all the problems we have in this world. That's what care kids are being taught today in today's neo-Marxist culture that is determined to eliminate the traditional family structure. But this is just another example of Scripture being fulfilled. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 says, And for this reason God sends upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they, may, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure. And unrighteousness. That passage is being manifested abundantly in our day today. God has sent forth a flood of deluding influences upon our culture because our culture has rejected Him. Our culture has rejected His law. Our culture has rejected His order. From Darwinian evolution, to climate change, to LGBTQism, to wokeness, from infanticide to drag queen story time for kids, from COVID insanity to the rigged, the rigged elections of 2020 and 2022, from the BLM mobs to the defund the police movement, from UFOs to the utterly corrupt and lying mainstream media, from people placing their trust in, in and utter dependence upon the government to the rise of AI which will be our new slave master in a few years. 
from the rise of Satanism to the utter biblical illiteracy that is spreading all over the internet. These are all examples of people who take pleasure in unrighteousness and cling to their idolatry, and God has rewarded them with a deluding influence so that they believe what is false, and they will stand by what is false, even if it is void of all common sense. They will stand in their utter foolishness. God is, is taking away his restraining hand and allowing Satan to deceive people who are willing to believe the lie. That is the father the world celebrates today. The father of lies. Not the godly father who leads in his home, but Satan. Anyway, these people who blame everything on the patriarchy, well, they are just blaming the order that God has established. God uses fathers, uses husbands to be representatives in their families for him. Wherein through the family's submission to a father's godly leadership, families are protected and sanctified. As Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Did you feel any discomfort as I read that? No? Okay, so a lot of people would. Our culture, because of that, has been totally indoctrinated to reject that passage with everything that is in them. Radical feminism has been very successful in rendering this passage as being immoral, claiming it supports the oppression and abuse of women. But this is God's word. And it also must be understood in the context that is in. It must be understood in light of what the following verses say. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, that, that totally eliminates any allowance to abuse or oppression that the husband would bring upon a wife. Because if he abuses his wife, he is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. So the entirety of this passage does not allow men to abuse their wives, which is how radical feminists have twisted this passage. This is the structure that God has created wherein the family thrives. Families that purposely operate outside of this structure will struggle and often fall apart. Of course, God's family structure is the very structure that the enemy is primarily focused on destroying in our day. Make no mistake, Pride Month that we are in now is not about acceptance. It's, it's about conquering and destroying God's created order on multiple levels. From love to sex to marriage to gender to family and the God-ordained roles for men and women in the family. All these things are under attack by the enemy. So anyway, Jacob gave no option for his family regarding their idolatry. He asserted his patriarchal authority and responsibility to unapologetically root out that which was ungodly in his family. He commanded them to surrender their idols, which is what all fathers should be regularly doing. There is no honoring a child's free will decision because children don't have free will. They are enslaved, just as we all are, they, or were before Christ, they are enslaved to their sin nature. 
And it is the father's responsibility to guide depraved children away from their depraved nature. It is child abuse to allow a child's sin nature to run rampant. But as, fa as fathers and husbands, we must start, all of us, by surrendering our own idols. And of course, we know that idols are not always statues of pagan deities. Idols take the forms of our jobs, our pleasures, our hobbies, our possessions, our family, our friends, our traditions, our identity, our comfort, our finances, our homes. Anything that takes precedence over God and his commands to us becomes an idol. Fathers and husbands, we need to lead in this and command our families to hand over their idols and come to the house of God. Oh, I thought it said. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> families, uh, what did I just say? So families and husbands, fathers and husbands, we need to lead in this and command our families to hand over their idols and come to the house of God, which is what the word Bethel means. It means house of God. In the Old Testament, the temple was the house of God. But under the new covenant, the church has become the temple of God, the house of God. We are the new Bethel. And in our gatherings, we construct a spiritual altar wherein we offer up a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. So Jacob called his family to put on clean garments. And that's a spiritual picture of repentance. It's a picture of us also coming to the cross of Christ and being washed in his blood. And then moving on to verse 3 of Genesis 35, it says, And let us arise, this is Jacob talking, let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So as we've read up until this point, God was with Jacob when he had to leave Canaan because Esau, his brother, was going to kill him. God was with Jacob when his father-in-law Laban was cheating and deceiving him. God was with Jacob when he fled from Laban and Laban pursued him. God was with Jacob when Jacob encountered his, es his brother Esau again. God was with Jacob during this crisis wherein because of his son's actions in Shechem, Jacob expected to be killed by the people around him. And in his distress, God caused Jacob to draw near to him, to God, which is what trials and sorrow does. These things draw us unto God. This great threat Jacob and his family faced as a result of his son's actions in Shechem stirred Jacob to assert his godly authority and step into that role that God had called him to. Then in verse 4 it says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Then they journeyed on, and, and there was a terror from God upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob's family obeyed and surrendered all the pagan idolatry stuff that they had that were drawing their hearts away from Yahweh. And God rewarded them by causing a terror to come upon the cities around them. God did this so the surrounding cities would not be able to take revenge on the Israelites for what they did to the Shechemites. Now, we, know, we don't know the specifics of how God caused this terror to come upon the cities, but boy, do we need a godly terror to come upon the world today. 
that would, that would once again instill the fear of God into people. There is no fear of God in this country, or this culture today. I saw the other day drag queens dancing around topless on the White House lawn as our so-called president celebrated this abomination. One of them was pictured in front of the Lincoln Memorial holding up a sign that said, I bet hell will be fabulous. There is no fear of God among the heathen. We need God to send a terror down upon these people. But first, we need God to send a terror down, down upon those who profess Christ. For there is, no, there is no lack of fear of God in the church as well. God did this for Jacob because Jacob was obedient and got rid of his uh, family's idols. <clears throat> for though our salvation is not conditional upon what we do, our sanctification is. Just like Israel as a nation was promised blessings from God for their obedience to him, so too will our walk with God be blessed with peace and joy if we live out our faith by being obedient to him. For us as Christians, God will chasten us to the point of death if we walk in disobedience. So we need to remember that. And then in Genesis 35, 6, it says, So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there, there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. That again is referring back to when Jacob used the rock for his pillow and saw the angels ascending and descending on the ladder when God spoke to him for the first time. But Jacob named the place way back then. He named it Bethel way back in Genesis 28. So why is he renaming the place El Bethel instead of just Bethel? Well, Bethel, like I said before, means house of God. So El Bethel means God of the house of God. It seems that Jacob is renaming the city, in renaming the city, was placing less emphasis on the location, the physical location, and more of a focus on the reason why the location was special. This speaks to us in that it speaks to the elements of worship that we partake in, wherein we recognize God's presence, whether it be a church building or the ordinances we partake in, such as communion or baptism. These are all sacred elements that we recognize God's presence in, in some degree. But our focus must be upon God and not upon the physical elements. So much of the church today has placed primary focus on the physical elements of their worship traditions. Lifting up those elements to be equal or even at a higher level than Christ himself. They have diminished the reason why those elements are treated as sacred. This is abundantly apparent in the Roman Catholic traditions or the Eastern or Orthodox churches that place much more focus on places and things and even on Christians who have passed away than on Jesus Christ in their worship. The sacred space of the church, the bread and the wine, the water of baptism and the dead Christian are sacred not because of themselves. They are sacred because of how they speak of God's finished work in Christ alone. That was the emphasis that I think Jacob was bringing out in renaming Bethel to El Bethel, the God of the house of God. It was another picture of his faith 
starting to mature. But as we shall see, Jacob would blow it again. <laughs> but before we go there, verse 8 takes place. And says that then Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Elen Bekuth, which means oak of mourning. Rebecca was Isaac's wife, Jacob's mother. So here we have another, we have our first sorrow of the chapter with the, with the mentioning of the death and burial of this woman named Deborah. This is not the Deborah from, that would be a prophetess later on. This is a different Deborah. So what is the significance of Deborah being mentioned here? I'm sure over the 30 years of Jacob's life that we have studied that other people had died at the, in that course of that time. But why is Rebecca's nurse, why is this death mentioned and mentioned in this context? Some liberal scholars consider this verse as intrusive and claim it was not part of the original text, but was a later addition that resulted from a tradition. However, there is no actual textual evidence that this was a later edition, as no manuscripts have ever been found without this verse in this context. So this passage was placed here by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a reason. And to understand why, we need to consider the details given. Why is this seemingly insignificant and never mentioned nurse given such a prominent mentioning in the Genesis narrative? And why is she given such a, a prominent burial under a tree that they named the Oak of Weeping? Um, there may be a, a scriptural reference to this woman prior to this passage. In Genesis 24, verse 58, it says, Then they called Rebekah. This was when Isaac was going to meet Rebekah and bring her back to, uh, to Canaan. It says, Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man, Isaac? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse. The so scholars speculate that this is the same nurse, Deborah, that would later pass away and be mentioned here. Um, the unprecedented mourning for this ordinary servant woman in Genesis 35 suggests that Deborah was greatly loved in Jacob's family. A common, ordinary person they could rely on in difficult times to be a rock or a person who gave great love and support. A person who served them day in and day out. God calls attention to this unsung hero in the midst of all the garbage that was going on with the big names of the faith that we read about. And I think as an, as an example for us to be those day in and day out servants of the Lord that get no attention. To be those kind of servants who humbly die to self and love others every day. That is the story of the overwhelming majority of faithful Christians throughout history. They go unknown to man, but they are fully known to God. And though Deborah is known to us because of this brief mentioning of her in Genesis 35, we really know nothing about her other than this. Only that it was a life that seemed to greatly bless Jacob's family as evidenced by their sorrow over her death and her mentioning in the text. But also some scholars have speculated on the symbolism that the mentioning of Deborah's death carries in her name and in her role. Deborah's role 
as a wet nurse meant, meant that she produced milk. The first occurrence of the Hebrew word yanak found in Genesis 24, 59 means wet nurse or one who nursed babies. In ancient Israel, the wet nurse nursed a baby on behalf of another woman. The service often entailed breastfeeding the baby, particularly when the mother had, had insufficient breast milk or if the mother died during childbirth. So Deborah's defining role among God's chosen people was that she produced milk. <laughs> but also Deborah's name is derived from the word for honeybee. So because of these two details, scholars see a connection of Deborah with the production of milk and honey, which in scriptures is a term often used to describe the promised land of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, they theorize that Deborah in some way was a picture. She didn't die accidentally, but just at the right time. The moment that Jacob stepped on the threshold of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, God took Deborah. Therefore, Deborah theoretically served as a precursor of the blessing of the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and that she served as a nourisher and a producer of food for Jacob's family. And thus, from a larger perspective, it speaks of the sovereignty of God and how he uses, uses all for, the great, for, for great and glorious works, many of whom, again, go unnoticed, though God knows them. My point here is that our tendency might be to read over this verse in the mentioning of Deborah, but without really thinking about why God mentioned her. Um, but I was blessed in, in digging this out, and, and, and uh, some may think it's a bit of a stretch, but I find the timing of this and the details concerning Deborah's name and her role symbolically compelling, if nothing more than to remind us um, that the majority of the heroes of the faith go unknown. Anyway, moving on to verse 9. It says, Then God appeared to Jacob. This is after Deborah had passed away. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel should be, shall be your name. Thus he called his name Israel. So this is the second time that God told Jacob his new name was going to be Israel. Remember back in Genesis 32, after he wrestled with God um, and his hip, hip, hip broke, God had told, told him then, your name's going to be Israel. And then, in, uh, So why did God repeat this name change to Jacob here again in Genesis 35? The Bible doesn't tell us directly, but remember, this was God speaking to Jacob before the Bible was written. Now I ask you, does God repeat himself when he speaks to us in Scripture? Absolutely. God repeats himself a lot in Scripture. Not because God is redundant, but because we tend to forget very easily. And certainly Jacob was a forgetful follower of God. In fact, that is why I believe that throughout Scripture, the names Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably in, in his account by God when he refers to him. He sometimes calls him Israel. He sometimes calls him Jacob. And in that, he's picked, it's a picture of the dual nature that Jacob and all of us struggle with, wherein we are born again in Christ and we take on a new identity in him, yet our old sinful nature still abides in us to some degree. And we struggle with this daily, this tension between our old sinful nature and our new identity in Christ. And when we look at Israel, that's what, it, that's what Israel means. 
struggles with God. So this is this. I think this is a picture. Um, this these dual names that that J Jacob had of the struggle that we have in this fallen state we are still in. Then in verse eleven of Genesis thirty-five, it says, "God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and an assembly of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from your loins. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give." The land to your seed after you. And here we have yet another repetition by God to Jacob, and that God is repeating the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob. The same covenant he spoke unto Jacob back in Genesis 28. And again, this should not be strange to us. God repeats himself. The entire book of Deuteronomy involves a lot of repetition from the laws given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The title Deuteronomy is derived from the Greek, which means a copy or a repetition of the law. So the second law, meaning it's, it's repeated. Then in verse 13, it says, Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. And yet again, we have more repetition, wherein Jacob set up another pillar like he did before, um, the last time he was in Bethel. And he formally named it again Bethel. Now, Bible credit critics will question this repetition. And they will say these repeated accounts have slight differences. Therefore, they must come from two different sources. This theory that people say that there's multiple sources for the book of Genesis, this is called the documentary hypothesis. And it's taught as fact in most liberal seminaries. <clears throat> the documentary hypothesis is, is essentially an attempt to take the supernatural out of the Pentateuch and deny Moa's, or Moses's, Moa's, Moses's authorship. The Pentateuch is, of course, in reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are also called the Torah in Hebrew. But in the core tenets of the documentary hypothesis, accounts such as the Red Sea crossing, the manna in the wilderness, the provision of water from solid rock, they're all considered stories from oral tradition that have been passed down for a thousand years, thus making the miraculous happenings mere products of imaginative storytellers and not events that actually happened that were recorded by eyewitness, the eyewitness named Moses. The documentary hypothesis, along with another theory called the JEDP theory, denies that Moses wrote, wrote the Pentateuch and instead ascribes its authorship to four or more different authors spread out over several hundreds of years. The documentary hypothesis is a liberal, is liberal theology's attempt to call the veracity of the Pentateuch into question. Proponents of this hypothesis believe as follows. Instead of placing the writing of the Pentateuch around 1400 BC, when Moses lived and died, the time frame has shifted a thousand years to around 400 BC. A thousand-year-old memory, even when orally passed down as faithfully as possible, will change um, the story and the original events. But we need to remember the Pentateuch was being written during the time when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. 
as a result of their rebellion, rebellion against, God, against God. To claim these events were not recorded until a thousand years after it happened is to cast doubt on whether or not God said these things, which is always the goal of God's enemy. Remember the words of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that? <laughs> Liberal theologians throughout the years have always tried to weaken the word of God by casting doubt upon its authenticity, even when they have no evidence. And one way they do that is by casting doubt on the historicity and the authorship of the first five books of Genesis, of the Bible. The question is whether this liberal theological view has any basis in reality. Well, Jesus answered that question. Jesus said in Mark 12, 26, he said, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of J Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus states plainly that Moses wrote the account of the burning bush in Exodus 3, which is part of the Pentateuch. To date, the Pentateuch, some 1,000 years after the death of Moses, is to deny Jesus' words. For he specifies that Exodus is part of the book of Moses. The apostles also credit Moses with the writing of the Pentateuch. So for us, that should be the end of the debate. If Jesus, you know, the guy that resurrected from the grave and conquered sin and death, if he said Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, then I believe Jesus before I believe an 18th century liberal French theologian named Johann Eichhorn, who originally formulated this documentary hypothesis based on zero textual evidence. You're gonna, you might hear that because this is the prevailing view that's out there in liberal Christianity coming from these seminaries that talk about Moses not being the author of the first five books. Anyway, verse 16. <clears throat> then they journeyed from Bethel, and there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and Rachel gave birth, and she suffered severely in her labor. So here we have a very interesting parallel being built. It says that Rachel was pregnant and traveling some distance to a place called Ephrath. First, we may be wondering, why is Jacob and his family again leaving the place that God had called him to dwell in, in Bethel? Here he is. He's there. He spent some time there, and now all of a sudden he's leaving again. Well, it appears that Jacob wanted to see his father Isaac before Isaac died, as the end of the chapter, chapter implies. Um, that would explain the urgency to travel before the baby could be born. But it should also remind us of another time when a pregnant woman had to travel, a time some 2,000 years after this event. Of course, I'm referring to the Virgin Mary, when she was pregnant with Jesus and had to travel to Bethlehem for a census. In fact, Rachel and Mary were traveling to the same place. It says Rachel was traveling to a place called Ephrath. Bethlehem, in more ancient times, was referred to as Ephrath or Ephratah, which is what we read about in the, the, the prophecy in Micah. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for, for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from ancient from the ancient days. This is, a, of course, a prophecy of Christ. 
And the main differences between the parallel between Rachel and Mary, of course, is that Rachel died on the way while giving birth. Mary, of course, did not. And the fact that Rachel was not a virgin <laughs> and she did not give birth to the Messiah. So those are minor differences. But, <laughs> but we should not skip over the fact that once again, Jacob was being disobedient to God. God commanded Jacob to live in Bethel, but Jacob left and would never again return to Bethel. Jacob would remain in Canaan until he was forced to go into Egypt because of a famine. And then, of course, the Israelites would remain in Egypt for centuries, eventually becoming slaves. And one, can, one can't help but wonder if Jacob had been obedient and stayed in Bethel, would he have gone through that? Would, would, he have, would Joseph um, had been, would he have been lost? You know, when, when, the, when, his, when his brothers would uh, pretend he died and that whole thing. But we'll get into that later. But one can't help but wonder, if Jacob had been obedient, would they have become slaves in Egypt? Would all of that have taken place? We don't know. But it's interesting. Then in verse 17, it says, Now it happened that when she, speaking of Rachel, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. Now it happened as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So here we have another sorrowful event in this chapter. As the matriarch, one of the matriarchs of Israel, Rachel, passes away in whom many women would connect with in Israel with regard to the sorrow that they would experience. If you remember in Matthew, when Herod slaughtered the babies in his attempt to kill the young Messiah, Jesus, Matthew wrote this in Matthew 2.17, said, Then was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew was citing a passage from Jeremiah 31. In its original context in Jeremiah's prophecy, it was relating to Israel's period of captivity in Babylon and the murder of the children during that invasion of Judea. And how the mothers in that day of these murdered children were portrayed collectively as Rachel and weeping for their sons who were murdered and led into exile. This legacy of motherly sorrow in Israel originated with Rachel in this 35th chapter of Genesis <clears throat> as she named her last child Benoni. Benoni meaning son of my sorrow. Because she would not live to see her child grow up. And this gives us a deeper understanding of the citation in Matthew uh, uh, that connecting Rachel to the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, as recorded in, in the New Testament. However, Jacob apparently didn't care for this name, Benoni, son of my sorrow. And certainly it would be a painful name to repeat when speaking to his son. So Jacob changed the child's name to Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Both names, interestingly enough, spoke prophetically of Jesus Christ. As Jesus would be called a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53, 
but also that he would sit at the right hand of the Father. So again, we continue to see Christ spoken of on every page, fulfilling what Jesus said, that he is spoken of in the scroll of the book. <laughs> Find that in Hebrews 10. And then in verse 21, it says, Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So after burying Deborah and burying his wife Rachel, Jacob continued on to Bethlehem, which is where the Tower of Eder was, and where more sorrowful events would occur. In verse 22, it says, Now it happened while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So if you remember, Bilhah was Rachel's servant, the one that Jacob had two children with when Rachel couldn't produce any children. Those two children, of course, were Dan and Nep Naphtali. So Reuben goes and has sex with her, basically his stepmom. Just to add to Jacob's grief, his oldest son does this. And all the text says is that Israel heard of it. Now that could be referring to Jacob and his new name, or it could be referring to all the people of Israel. Either way, it was a painful and shameful thing that came upon Jacob. And scripture gives no indication of an immediate punishment that he would in, in bring upon Reuben. However, 1 Chronicles 5.1 records for us the consequence that Reuben faced. In 1 Chronicles 5.1, it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So we see that this thing that Reuben did to his, with his stepmother disqualified him from having the birthright that was supposed to be given to the firstborn son. What is interesting is that the next in line would have been Simeon. And the next in line after him would have been Levi. But remember what they did. They were the ones that slaughtered all the people of Shechem. But Jacob was not happy with them either. Um, the fourth son was Judah, whom we shall, in Genesis 38, he will defile himself. We'll, we'll see that. Then the next several sons in line were the sons that came from servants and not from Leah or Rachel. Um, until Leah would eventually have Issachar and Zebulun. But Jacob would ultimately choose to give that firstborn birthright to his favorite son, Joseph, the son of Rachel, of whom much of the remainder of the book of Genesis will be about, as the life of Joseph will serve to be an amazing prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. And we will, we will eventually get there. But we're not done yet here with our great sorrowful chapter. <laughs> In verse 27, it says, And Jacob came to his father Isaac, at Mamre of Kiraththarba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we don't know exactly how long, but scholars speculate that Jacob lived in Hebron and in Canaan for 10 years, before Isaac died. 
Jacob was probably around 120 years old and Isaac was around 180 years old, as the text says. And we see that Jacob would have another reunion with his brother Esau in the burial of their father. But the death of Isaac, Jacob's father, was yet another sorrowful event in the life of Jacob in this chapter. If we step back from Jacob's life that we've read about so far, he's had a tough life. He was hated by his brother for his deception, deceived deceived by and cheated by his father-in-law Laban on multiple occasions. He had his hip broken while wrestling with God. (laughs) His daughter was raped. His two sons committed mass murder, and his other sons pillaged an entire city. And then his beloved and faithful nurse died. Rachel died. His eldest son had sex with Jacob's concubine, and Jacob's father dies. Jacob disobeyed God on multiple occasions and often failed as a husband and as a father. Even more great sorrow awaits Jacob with regard to his favorite son, Joseph, as we will see in the coming chapter. And yet, Jacob was still chosen by God, and we will see him in heaven, where all this sorrow that he has experienced will be wiped away by Christ himself. So I got to remind you, sorrow is a gift that reminds all of us that all the great voids and tragic things we experience in our lives that cause sorrow will be completely done away with. Those voids will be filled with Christ when we are in glory with him. And that's what we eagerly look forward to. That's what we eagerly long for as we groan for that time when we will be brought together with him. God allows us to live in this discomfort in this world because he doesn't want us to be comfortable in this fallen state. He wants us to long for him because that's what he originally that's the perfect ideal that he has made for us to live in joy with him so that is our our hope and our eager expectation so though this chapter is full of sorrow the greater picture is christ that he will indeed fulfill his promises so let's uh let's pray heavenly father lord i thank you for your word here so much that we can look at here lord god in the life of jacob so much we can look at in your word and, and how your word prophetically points us to Christ in so many ways as we as we scratch away the surface and dig deeper and, and, and see you written upon every page, Father God. We, we praise you and give you glory, Lord, for your um, God-breathed, inerrant word that you have given us, that revelation that you have given us, Lord, to increase our faith and grow us, Lord, in our understanding of you and your, your will and your destiny that you have for us, Lord God. And we just praise you and thank you, Father God, that we can we can have a hope in the midst of sorrow, that we don't dwell in this sorrow hopelessly and, and, and die in it. We have an eternal expectation of joy. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Be glorified as we continue on in our worship service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.